From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Untreated hepatitis C can lead to liver failure and even death. And since baby boomers are at greater risk of hepatitis C, health officials are urging that everyone over the age of 65 be tested. You can get hepatitis C through contaminated blood. So before the early 1990s, blood products may have had hepatitis C. Since that time, we've been able to diagnose it and screen the blood banks. Also on the program, food allergies and what to do if you have one. And hemorrhoids. It's usually only a matter of time before you get them. And does bad luck have anything to do with getting cancer. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hepatitis C, one of several hepatitis viruses, is generally considered to be among the most serious. In fact, if left untreated, hepatitis C can cause serious liver damage, cirrhosis of the liver, even death. Hepatitis C is also a leading cause of liver cancer and the number one reason for liver transplants. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that people born between 1945 and 1965, in other words, baby boomers, boomers. are five times more likely than other adults to be infected with hepatitis C. And because people who are infected often go decades with no symptoms, the CDC is urging everyone in that age group to be tested. It's estimated that if everybody in that age group was tested, it could prevent more than 120,000 deaths from liver disease. Pretty amazing. There are a lot of good things about being a baby boomer, but I guess this isn't one of them. (laughs) We'll find out. You know, it's not really known why the baby boomer population is at such high risk for hepatitis C infection, but here to shed some light on the subject and talk about diagnosis and treatment of hepatitis C is Dr. Stacy Rizza. Dr. Rizza is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rizza. Nice to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So why are the baby boomers having such a hard time with (laughs) hepatitis C? That's an excellent question. Um, The CDC, right before they made this recommendation, actually did focal group analysis. And so that's the best information I can give you, is that in the focal groups, it happens to be that, or at least what it suggests, is that those are the groups that had a higher risk because of some of their behaviors. So the risk factors for getting hepatitis C is pretty much through blood or body fluids. You can get hepatitis C through contaminated blood. So before the early 1990s, um, blood products may have had hepatitis C. Since that time, we've been able to diagnose it and screen the blood banks. You can also get hepatitis C through dirty needles, so if someone who's injecting drugs. You can get hepatitis C through snorting cocaine, particularly if you're sharing straws, because it's the blood on the straw that may have come from someone's sort of crusty nasal mucosa. Oh, my gosh. And then you give it to your friend, and they shove the bloody straw into their bloody, crusty nasal mucosa. You're actually transmitting the virus through the blood. Tattoos can also transmit hepatitis C. And epidemiologically, we've realized in the last five to ten years that you can actually transmit hepatitis C through sex, too, although that happens more commonly in people who are HIV co-infected and men who have sex with men and people who use rougher sex practices. 
So it's probably just that the baby boomers had a higher incidence of those risk factors than maybe some other members of society. So but, we've sort of brought this on ourselves. Well, I, I wouldn't go so far <laughs> to say that. And again, this is just information from the focal groups that the CDC did. But epidemiologically, it's clear that it's that generation that had the higher incidence. Now, you can also get hepatitis C by being born to a mother who has active hepatitis C. So that may be a bit part of it as well. And this is a viral infection, correct? Yes, this is a virus. This is an RNA virus that infects humans. And it's one of several different types of hepatitis C, but this being the most serious. So there are several different viruses that can infect humans and predominantly affect the liver. And they were named in order of when they were discovered, A, B, C, D, and so forth. Hepatitis C is an RNA virus that affects the liver. It's one of the few that can cause a chronic infection. And if you actually look at the numbers, it's huge. In fact, in the United States, it's probably over four or close to 4 million worldwide, close to 170 million. So these numbers absolutely blow away HIV and many other infections. Huge numbers of people have become infected. Now, the naming of it's not very original, hepatitis C. Exactly. But then there's two kinds of hepatitis C. So there's, I don't know, CA and CB, however you want to say. What are the two different types of hepatitis C? So they're actually more than that. If if what you're referring to are genotypes, they're Mm -hmm. actually genotypes and subtypes to the viruses. And there are too many of them. Okay. In fact, there are for HIV as well. But in many of the other viral infections that have impact humans, it doesn't really matter. So they have no difference in epidemiology. They have no difference in treatment. The only reason why we care for hepatitis C is that they respond differently to treatment, and you use slightly different treatments depending on what the genotype is for hepatitis. So they're genotypes one through six with several different subtypes, like a 1A, a 1B, a 6A. So they're actually more and more of the subtypes. And we look at that to determine what we should treat the patient with. You know, I know you have a vaccine for one of the types of hepatitis. It never made sense to me. If you've you've got a vaccine for one kind, why don't you have it for the other kind? (laughs) That's a great question for all of vaccinology. (laughs) So we have a vaccine for hepatitis B, which is an entirely different virus that also infects humans. And hepatitis B is able to confer immunity by using a single epitope or close to a small epitope Mm -hmm. in somebody forming a humoral as well as a T-cell immunity. Hepatitis C is going to require a T-cell or cellular immunity in order to control the infection. In fact, we know from a group of people who were infected with hepatitis C in England back in the late 1970s, early 1980s that hit agammaglobulinemia. So these are people who cannot form antibodies, and several of them actually cleared their hepatitis C infection. So we know simply forming a humoral immunity or forming antibodies to this virus is not enough. There have been billions of NIH dollars in decades of research. In fact, Chiron Corporation, which actually first described the virus, has been working on a vaccine for over two decades. And unfortunately, we're just not close, and it's not working for hepatitis C so far. I know this is a difficult disease to treat, but it, I believe there are some new medications on the market that have that are more effective than anything you've had previously, but they're horrendously expensive, aren't they? So the world of hepatitis C absolutely spun on its head a few years ago with the invent, or with the release and approval of these new drugs. Hepatitis C, depending on the genotype, was very difficult to treat. Many times required injections with interferon every week, as mm-hmm. well as pills you take every day, and people would take it up to a year, and even then only had a 50% chance of cure. These drugs have absolutely revolutionized the treatment. These are pills that you take, Many times, depending on the program, only once a day. 
Many of these programs are only for 12 weeks. Some of them are actually only for eight weeks, and the cure rates are close to 95 to 100%. Wow. So no it, more re- liver transplants? Abs- no, so that's the hope. <laughs> so it absolutely revolutionized the treatment. But these drug companies, as their gold standard, used a liver transplant to price them. So they priced these just mm. below the cost of a liver transplant mm. because they put so much of their R&D into developing these hep C drugs. So the beginning programs were extremely expensive and remain very expensive. But as more and more are being approved, it's actually driving the price down slightly. And we're hoping we'll get to a point, and many activist groups have actually been petitioning Congress to actually step in and help control the price on some of these medications. Is it important for Dr. Shives and all of his other baby boomer friends to get tested for hepatitis C? Absolutely, because many people, most people who have chronic hep C will have absolutely no idea. So if everybody who is in that age group gets tests, and what the CDC recommends is a single blood test, which is a serology. And if you have more risk factors, you may need to be checked more often. If you are ongoingly getting tattoos or injecting drugs or snorting cocaine, you may need more testing. But if not, if you don't have any other risk factors, just a single test if you are born within that age group. Anybody born outside that age group who has risk factors should also get checked. But I did hear you say that the new drugs are 95% effective in curing hepatitis C. Many of these. Even in people who have cirrhosis, these numbers are pushing the 90s. In those who don't have cirrhosis and who have never been treated before, it's close to 98, 100%. So is it reversing that cirrhosis? That's an excellent question, and that we're, it's, it's still being investigated over time. There may be a little bit of evidence, but as a whole, cirrhosis is hard to reverse. Dr. Stacey Rizza, infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for the update on the diagnosis and especially on the treatment of hepatitis C. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, as many as 15 million people in the U.S. have food allergies. We'll have a list of the most common foods to which people are allergic and talk with an allergy expert about what you can do if you have a food allergy. Special Mayo Clinic Radio greetings to our Fort Smith, Arkansas listeners who hear us on KUOZ-FM. And to our Reno listeners who hear us on KSVL-FM in Smith, Nevada. These are just two of the more than 70 stations that broadcast our program nationwide. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Food allergies. Who doesn't oh. have one or thinks they might have one? I bet you think you've got one. I or have to more think on one. that. Yeah. Maybe liver. It might be allergic I, to that. Everybody is. Well, maybe not everybody, I guess. It might be to peanuts or tree nuts, shellfish, eggs, milk, wheat. The list is a long it one. It can be, yes. Put simply, a food allergy is an immune system reaction that occurs soon after eating a certain food, even a tiny amount of the allergy-causing food can trigger signs and symptoms such as digestive problems, hives, or swollen airwaves. That's frightening. In some people, a food allergy can cause severe symptoms or even life-threatening reactions known as anaphylaxis. Yeah, you know, uh, like peanuts. Yeah. And you have heard of pe- people yes. who have died of eating a peanut. Well, or a part of a peanut in a cookie. It's amazing. <laughs> Here to talk about some of the more common food allergies and how they're treated is Dr. Rohit Divakar. Dr. Divakar is an allergy specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Divakar. Always good to have you. Thank you. So everybody thinks they have a food allergy. How many people really do? That is an excellent question. (laughs) So with food allergies, what we attempt is to define, is it really an allergy or not? And food reactions are divided into three broad categories. 
one hand you have real food allergies the second category is food intolerances the third category is food aversions and with the first category which is food allergies there is a distinct immune basis to the reactions and these are usually reproducible and they can be objectively tested for the second problem which is food intolerances are a nebulous or a loose term which just says that that particular food doesn't agree with you and there is no immune basis that we can delve into to address that situation that would be like spicy food some people can eat spicy food some can't exactly and that depends upon the physiology of the person how they digest foods whether maybe they lack an enzyme to digest a particular sugar for example lactose intolerance is because you lack the enzyme to digest lactose lactose is broken down by the bacteria in the gut it gets fermented and that causes severe bloating gas and diarrhea but if you didn't know any better you might think oh i have allergy to milk and this is what i manifest with in- How is it that you can as a child not have any problem with milk and then you know as an adult all of a sudden you start saying you know maybe I have some sort of intolerance with lactose um, does that develop over or are you just can. not paying attention when you're a kid actually it can develop at any point it in can. time uh, especially if you have some uh, infectious colitis or if you have any other GI abnormality then you can develop lactose intolerance later on in life sorry i didn't mean to interrupt because you were finishing <clears throat> telling us about an actual food allergy a food intolerance and then a food aversion that yeah, would be like crazy liver, liver. Yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> a food aversion is a phenomenon which has some basis in an unpleasant experience the person has had in the past and they may have had true allergies which now they have outgrown of or they've had just a bad experience with a particular food and if they were to know that they are consuming that food then they feel like some of those symptoms are oh, coming wow. back again and uh, this is a big issue because it's hard to then uh, distinguish whether the symptoms that the patient has are they really happening or is this something that they feel hmm. is happening to them well when it comes to food allergies i think you know dr shives referenced it it seems like the peanut is the one that is just at the very top of the mountain you know maybe there's seafood or some of those different types i think i you know know lots of people who've got all these different kinds but the peanut is really such an issue for children it seems children what where are we at with that because it seems like i just heard a thing that said oh no we've got a new study that shows if you feed a little bit of peanuts to children then they won't have a peanut allergy it's like it's different every time we talk right um so the peanut for some reason evokes a very strong allergic response huh. and it might have to do with the proteins that are present in the peanut or it might have to do in the way uh kids are exposed to peanut in this or developed countries now the study that you mentioned uh, they carefully selected for kids who were eligible to the study that they introduced peanut and they found that it seemed to help now this brings up the whole issue of what is called as oral desensitization mm-hmm. where you give or one would think that giving them the agent that they are allergic to slowly over time will help cure their allergies a lot of studies have shown promising results with these there is uh, clinical trials with uh, egg hmm. there is trials with milk peanut of course and uh, they are showing promise but i would caution parents from doing that at home because these are things that could potentially 
put the kid in a dangerous situation, especially if they're done under supervision. Aside from peanuts, what are the most common food allergies, and how do you find out? So peanut, tree nut, milk, uh, dairy, soy, wheat, fish, shellfish are probably the common ones that we see, uh, and uh, of which egg and dairy, you usually tend to outgrow off peanut and shrimp and seafood typically you do not. And what are the usual symptoms? So it depends upon uh, the route of administration. Mostly, usually it's almost always oral. But you can also have symptoms that can uh, arise by coming in contact with it or sometimes even inhaling some of the food uh, dust particles that can come off from food. Yes. And, and what happens? So in, in that case, uh, the typical symptoms can be uh, swelling of the throat, lip swelling, hives, difficulty breathing, um, hoarseness, uh, fainting. And in the most severe circumstances, it's what is called as the anaphylactic shock. And that's why you have to have that... Epinephrine. Yes, with you at all times. Correct. So in people who have a documented evidence of a true food allergy and they've had a life-threatening reaction, or they are at the risk of a life-threatening reaction, we would recommend carrying uh, an epinephrine injector. And how do you figure this out for sure? I mean, someone has had a severe food allergy, but they don't know, they had a full meal, and they don't know exactly what it was. You can figure it out, right? Yes. So the the typical scenario is uh, we see patients who say they had something for food, and then they came down with symptoms that were highly suggestive of a food reaction. Never happened before. Never happened before, and maybe it was a food that they never tried before. And then what we do is uh, we test for those specific foods and see if there are any positive reactions either on the skin or in the blood that might suggest, yes, it was indeed something that you ate. And then, obviously, avoidance is the is the key to not having this happen Absolutely. again. Absolutely. But if it was a close to life-threatening reaction, then they get the EpiPen. Correct. Thanks so much, Dr. Divakar, for bringing us up to date on food allergies. Dr. Rohit Divakar is an allergy specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here, Dr. Divakar. Okay. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, my colleague Dennis Dota joins Dr. Shives to talk about a topic most of us would rather avoid, hemorrhoids. But ignore them or not, sooner or later, most of us will get them. And is getting cancer just bad luck? You might be surprised to learn that the role bad luck plays in getting cancer has been studied. We'll tell you what the researchers have found out. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'd like to extend a special Mayo Clinic Radio greeting to our listeners in Melbourne, Florida, who hear us on KFHA AM. And our Nashville listeners who hear us on WDBL AM in Springfield, Tennessee. These are just two of the more than 70 stations that broadcast our program nationwide. Thanks for listening. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
raw food detox cabbage soup, the three-day flush. The list of fad diets is long. Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist Dr. Summer Allen says many fad diets work by drastically slashing calories. If anybody calorie restricts themselves to five to 600 calories in a day, they're going to lose weight. But she says severe calorie restrictions are not realistic long-term. And for a lot of people restricting themselves from things uh, in the long-term, they end up craving it even more. Dr. Allen says successful, sustainable weight loss is all about lifestyle changes. Fill your plate with fruits and veggies, whole grains and lean meats, and definitely get moving. Be more physically active. Start small. So start with a day a week as far as your activity level, and then work toward the five days or six days a week of activity. Sure, fad diets may help jumpstart your weight loss goals, but for long-term success, focus on healthy lifestyle changes. And now, do you know the greatest threats to men's health? The list is surprisingly short. The top causes of death among adult men in the U.S. are heart disease, stroke, cancer, and chronic lower respiratory disease. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The good news is that a few lifestyle changes can significantly lower your risk of these common killers. So let's start out with don't smoke. Eat a healthy diet. Limit foods high in saturated fat and sodium. Also, maintain a healthy weight. Losing excess pounds and keeping them off can lower your risk of heart disease as well as various types of cancer. Also, get moving. Include physical activity in your daily routine. Also, limit alcohol. If you choose to drink alcohol, do so in moderation. Now, for men, that means up to two drinks a day for men age 65 and younger and one drink a day for men older than age 65. Then, manage stress. If you feel constantly on edge or under assault, your lifestyle habits may suffer. And last, stop avoiding the doctor. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and with me as co-host is Mr. Dennis Dota, sitting in for our regular co-host, Tracy McCray. Dennis, good to have you. Always good to sit in on the show. I learn something every time. Well, you're definitely going to learn something today. Maybe it's not a topic you want to know so much about, but it's a it's an extremely common problem. And so, glad to have you with us. And you know, you're used to TV, and so that's pretty good, isn't it? You don't have to get all slicked up for this And your audio is better. Your audio is way better. <laughs> well, hemorrhoids. That's our topic, and they are probably not the sort of thing that you're likely to hear about in a casual conversation or at the cocktail party. But decorum and etiquette aside... Uh, most of us don't need a really a lengthy, lengthy explanation with regard to what a hemorrhoid is. Now, that's because by the age of 50, about half of all adults have to deal with the, the itching, the discomfort, and the bleeding that often signals the presence of hemorrhoids. And when you understand what they are, you kind of can understand what's going on there. Hemorrhoids are swollen and inflamed veins around the anus or inside the lower rectum. They're usually more of a nuisance than a serious medical problem, and often they can be treated with over-the-counter medications or lifestyle changes. But there are times when hemorrhoids require more extensive treatment by a doctor. Well, here to explain just what hemorrhoids are, although you did a pretty good job of it, Dennis, we'll talk about, we'll find out what they are, what causes them, and how best to treat them, colorectal surgeon, Dr. John Pemberton. Dr. Pemberton, good to have you with us. Thanks, guys, very much. It's good to be here. Now, uh, Dr. Pemberton, I have heard it said that there are two types of people in this world, those who have hemorrhoids and those who are going to get them. Is, this, is that an overstatement or fact or fiction? Well, kind of both. 
Because everybody has hemorrhoids. Pretty much of a common misunderstanding that the hemorrhoidal cushions, which is another term for them, are present in everybody. Hmm. The question is, what happens if, as Dennis mentioned a moment ago, lifestyle changes interfere with the normal, uh, everyday elimination patterns that people have as children? And those are the problems that cause hemorrhoids to flare and give patients symptoms. But otherwise, you and I, we all have the hemorrhoidal cushions. The question is, what happens to those cushions when there are lifestyle changes and you can get problems uh, from them that way? And it can happen internally or externally. Correct. What's the difference there? Big time. The external hemorrhoids are the ones that can get thrombosed from all sorts of different reasons. Thrombosed, clotted? Clotted, and, um, and they can cause pain. Internal hemorrhoids, by definition, are not painful interestingly, mm. because they are in an area, they form in an area that has a different uh, pain distribution, the pain fiber distribution than on the outside, which is where the external hemorrhoids are. You talked about them being cushions. Mm-hmm. Don't quite understand what you mean by that. They form the normal, part of the normal anatomy of the anal canal. Hemorrhoids. To help hemorrhoidal cushions, right, um, to, uh, to help control elimination and continence. Oh, so because you have these these cushions, that helps keep you continent, exactly. so you don't lose stool exactly. when you when you when you shouldn't. Exactly. But the problem is when these uh, cushions uh, get clotted off, it's kind of like a varicose vein. It is can it? it can be. Those are the mainly the external ones, Tom, that, that that cause that. The internal ones get enlarged and engorged and prolapse and bleed, all the things you mentioned earlier. Prolapse? Prolapse meaning coming out. You can actually see them and feel them. Um, When there are problems with straining, that's the biggest problem, and the reason that most people have troubles with their internal hemorrhoids is straining at stool. That's the number one cause. What are other causes then? Well, like reading on the toilet for an hour. You don't do that. Because the strain that's put on the pelvic floor during that time is huge. And if you do that day after day after day and strain and the stools are are really hard, then you can cause problems with um, pressure, increased pressure in the pelvic floor, increased pressure in the hemorrhoidal cushions, prolapse, bleeding, so forth. uh, So what's the difference between sitting on the toilet and sitting in a chair? I mean, is it because the toilet is lower? Is that why you can't read on the on the throne? Well, you're trying to do something on the throne versus sitting in the chair. Two different things. And you're pushing pressure on the pelvic floor. So that's the number one yep. cause of internal hemorrho- yep. hemorrhoids yep. Straining. is straining at stool. at stool. All right. What about external hemorrhoids? What causes those? That's a hard one, Tom. No one really knows who's going to have a problem with that and who doesn't. A lot of people will have that and with absolutely no uh, no tie to the problems of, that I mentioned before about straining and so forth. It just can, it just can happen. Aren't uh, hemorrhoids fairly common during pregnancy? And, and what the you, internal hemorrhoids are. The internal. Correct. Okay. Again, and, and there's why? the pressure in the pelvic floor from the, from the, from the child, from the uterus. Oh, so the fetus is taking up all exactly. the room and pushing against the, uh, the veins. The perineum, per, the, the perineum and the pelvic floor and the hemorrhoidal cushions are easily distended by that pressure. Are there ways to avoid getting hemorrhoids? I'm sure people yeah. would like to, you know, yeah. do what they can. Yeah, it's called uh, it's called uh, a healthy daily stool habit with no straining. The two 
key words are no straining. However, you can accomplish that usually by, as we talked about, lifestyle changes, lots of exercise, good food, high-fiber diet, and supplemented high-fiber diet if necessary in order to achieve one easily passed stool per day without straining. Uh, but you've left the impression with us that having a, a bowel movement every day mm-hmm. is the norm. The norm in the United States population is three bowel movements per day to three bowel movements per week. That's the huge variability of what's considered normal. So we like to say that a normal elimination would be about one to two stools in 24 hours without straining. All right. So let's say you're further down the road than that. Now you're dealing with hemorrhoids. Are there some over-the-counter types of preparations that work? Well, if hemorrhoids are swollen, then it's reasonable to try to try to... Uh, make sure that they're not. And you can do that by, by not straining so you, the hemorrhoids don't prolapse out, don't come out on, uh, out through the anus. Or if they're out and they're sticking out, then there are ways to, there are things like Preparation H, which works to eliminate the, the, uh, the swelling around the hemorrhoidal group. Um, that can be helpful. Now, is the, are these kind of medications good for both the external and the internal hemorrhoids? The external hemorrhoids are completely different. They behave totally differently. So how do you know what you've got? Pain. Pain in the doctor tells you. Oh, so the external hemorrhoids are painful, yep. the internal hemorrhoids are not. Usually. Now, does preparation H work for getting rid of those bags under your eyes? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I've I, seen that late night talk show, too. <laughs> I saw that same thing. No comment. At some point, then, it's just nothing that you can make better on your own, so you should go see a doctor. When do you know it's time if, to do that? Well, if there's bleeding, constant bleeding, if you're having classic bleeding into the toilet, um, which, you know, by the way, one or two drops of blood in the toilet water can look like you're dying of bleeding. I mean, hmm. it's, it's, it's not you know, as dramatic as it usually as you think it might be. But, uh, but yeah, if, if those things happen or if you're having trouble with keeping your perineum clean after a bowel movement, that means the hemorrhoidal groups are sitting out and you can't clean them well. Um, those are reasons to seek uh, an opinion of a surgeon on whether or not the hemorrhoids should be managed more aggressively. All right. So uh, one reason to go see your doctor would be uh, blood in your stool, mm-hmm. uh, blood in the toilet bowl. Mm-hmm. Another would be if the external hemorrhoids are, are painful. Well, and if causing- the external hemorrhoids are painful and uncomfortable, you re- you will probably consult a physician because it's a uh, surgeon because it's very uncomfortable. All right. So we talked about uh, uh, there are over-the-counter remedies you suggested that might help, one being Preparation H. Are there others? Not that I know of. Then what's next? Let's say that uh, you've exhausted that as a, as an option. And, and you, it's not helping you and anymore. You're, and you're not, and you, and are we talking about external, internal, or both? Either. Either one. Well, the external hemorrhoids have a, have a natural history. They get bad, and it gets, the, the pain increases over a two or three day period, peaks, and starts to go away. And if you consult a physician or a surgeon after that, three- to four-day period, the hemorrhoidal group will go away on its own and no treatment is indicated. But if you're really uncomfortable and the group is large and um, and you need and you're seeking help, then often those will be evacuated surgically 
as an outpatient. Uh, those are external hemorrhoids. Internal hemorrhoids, different story. All right, but you can cure either. You can cure either. All right, our guest, colorectal surgeon, Dr. John Pemberton, everything you wanted to know about hemorrhoids. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, is getting cancer about genetics, or is it more about exposure to carcinogens? Could luck be involved as well? We'll talk with a cancer expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Stoda. You know, over the past several decades, researchers have shown numerous links between cancer and various environmental factors, from, you know, exposure to substances like radon to the many hazardous chemicals in tobacco smoke. The list of carcinogens really is a long one. Carcinogens meaning things that can cause cancer. Well, more recently, scientists have begun to demonstrate the role our genes play in whether or not we're at higher risk for getting certain cancers. But what about the role of luck? In, a, in the scientific world of modern medicine, no one seems to talk much about whether getting cancer might just be bad luck. But it turns out some scientists have actually studied what luck might have to do with it. A study published last year in the journal Science concluded that the majority of cancers are due to random mutations in non-cancerous cells and that uh, resulting cancer might simply be bad luck. That researcher was quickly challenged by a study published in the journal Nature, however, which concluded that most cancers are due to environmental factors. Sounds like a little controversy in the world of oncology. Well, just what, if any role, does luck play in whether we get cancer. Here to help us consider that question and hopefully answer it, Dr. Tim Moynihan. Dr. Moynihan is a cancer specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Moynihan. Good to have you back. Glad to be here, Tom. It's always fun to talk to you. So the first words out of many people's mouths, and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times when you tell them they have cancer, is why? Or why me? And that's, a, that, that's an obvious question that everybody would ask, and that's certainly understandable. And honestly, for the majority of cancers, we often do not know, nor can we clearly 100% identify a causative factor. There are certainly some cancers that there's no question we know what caused them. Uh, most lung cancers are from smoking and the chemicals that you've talked about that may be associated with that. Uh, certain other cancers like mesothelioma is almost exclusively associated with exposure to asbestos at some time. Yeah, that's a cancer of the <clears throat> lining of the lung, correct? It can be a lining of the lung. It can be lining of other places, too, including the lining of the abdominal cavity. It can occur in the testes. It can occur in the ovaries. It can occur in other places. But the most common is in the lining of the lung. But it took right. us a long time to figure that out, right, that uh, the two it were did. associated, asbestos and mesothelioma. Absolutely, and it's very difficult to sort these things out. It took 50 to 60 years to understand that there's association between tobacco and lung cancer also. So sometimes the environmental factor is firmly established. Mm-hmm. What about that factor of luck? Does that come up with patients? Absolutely, because, again, many times we cannot identify a source or a reason that an individual got the cancer. And so uh, one of the papers that you alluded to uh, was a paper by the Vogelstein group of, uh, of Johns Hopkins. And in their estimation, they think that maybe as much as two-thirds of cancer may be just associated with bad luck. However, when you actually carefully look at these studies, one of the things that I find very fascinating about cancer, it is a really, really complex disease. 
And so it's not just as simple as two-thirds of the cancers may be due to random luck. What it may be is that we know that there are many, many smokers who never get cancer. Matter of fact, if you look at all heavy smokers, only about 10 to 20% of those people will eventually develop a lung cancer or some other cancer-associated I thought it was 50. It may not be that high. It's, it, it depends on what, if you're looking at any cancer, maybe as high as 50%. Lung by itself may be on the order of 10 to 20%. Really? So why is it that some people develop it and other people don't, even though they have the same risk factor? On the, on the other hand, there are people who have never been around smoke at all who get lung cancer. So why did those people get it? So it may be the point that the Volgosin paper was trying to make is that it may be that up to two-thirds of the patients who have an exposure to something that we know clearly is associated with cancer, up to two-thirds of those people, we may have to account for that in just bad luck rather than that factor that they were exposed to. So when you say bad luck, I mean, we've got cells in our body that are dividing all the time, millions and millions every day, I presume. And so it, it isn't too hard to uh, to understand, is it, that uh, one of these uh, cells could could turn malignant? Something could go wrong in this very complex process of cell division. Absolutely. And, and actually, that happens all the time. So when we're when we make new cells, we have to make new DNA. Okay? And our DNA is just a blueprint for our cells to tell them what to do, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. And we know that cancers arise when their mutations occur within the DNA within any given cell. Now, our bodies, and when we replicate these cells, make mistakes all the time. Okay? They're doing that all the time. But fortunately, our body has a spell checker, for lack of a better <laughs> word. Okay? Yeah. And it goes in and makes sure that the right chemicals line up with the right chemicals and does a spell check, and if it finds an error, it will go in and repair that. Now, in some people, if the spell checker quits working, then it misses those errors. Those errors start to accumulate, and that may be when the cancer starts to form. Is that why, in general, that you would presume the cause of uh, cancer being more common in older individuals because the spell checker wears out? Absolutely. That may be one part of it, because, again, we certainly know that as we grow older, a much higher chance to get cancer, and our bodies don't work as well as, we're, uh, as we get older, as we all know, both on a total body level uh, as well as on an individual cellular level doesn't work quite as well. We have about a minute to go, and uh, on this whole idea of luck, if somebody says, well, it's just luck whether I do or don't get cancer, is it possible they give up trying to lead a healthy lifestyle and avoid some of the causal effects? Is that something that you have to deal with? That can happen, and I think that's a bad idea because a large proportion of cancers probably are preventable through not smoking, through avoiding the use of tobacco products, from immunizations. We know that many cancers arise from viruses, the hepatitis, uh, human papillomavirus causing uh, either penile or cervical cancer. Throat cancer can also be from HPV. So vaccination against some of these things can help be prevent uh, being overweight and sedentary certainly leads to increased risk of cancer. And so controlling your weight, controlling your diet, uh, avoiding exposure of bad things certainly can be helpful. Is it a panacea that will 
stop all cancers? No. Will help decrease your risk? Absolutely. So these are simple things that should be done and should be followed. So we can't change your luck, but we can certainly change your chances of getting cancer by doing a few uh, healthy lifestyle things. It might be like counting cards at the casino. Maybe you improve your luck to some degree by, by staying on top of these things. Absolutely. All right. Oncologist, cancer specialist, Dr. Timothy Moynihan of the Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that takes care of our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional for more information please go to our website radio.mayoclinic.org please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know